Hey, everybody, if you like our podcast, um, I want to recommend a podcast that I really like. It's called Blank Check. Now, Amy, I know you've been on this podcast. I have been on this podcast, and you've been on this podcast. I have indeed, and it's hosted by the star of Amazon show The Tick, Griffin Newman, and the Atlantic senior film critic David Sims. These are both swell guys, and the setup of their podcast is this. What if you were the coolest director in the world, and then you got a blank check? What are the films you make, and do they hold up? See, I love that idea because it's tracking a filmmaker's journey, not a style of film or an actor. Because I think a filmmaker and the filmmakers that they talk about are making choices, and you're getting to see them scratch an itch that we don't even know that they have. And it kind of, uh, I think I got caught up with this show when I was listening to their Spielberg series, and especially Crystal Skull. That kind of helped me, like, get into the mind of Spielberg. I think he had just done Munich and then did Crystal Skull. I think that was about the comparison. It's a great, great podcast. And they talk about your favorite director, Mr. James Cameron. Uh, the best. And they talk about, you know, from True Lies and, and Avatar to Titanic. It's, it's a great way of talking about great films, but also kind of trying to get inside the mind of a director. Yeah, they're two really smart guys. And as they say, the question of the show is, if you get a blank check, is your check going to clear or is it going to bounce? And if you want to start with episodes with me and Amy, you can. I did one where I talked about just a movie that I really love that I think is underappreciated called uh, Running Scared with Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal. And what did you do? Memento. I think Memento is maybe the best movie Christopher Nolan ever did. So I was wow. happy to plant my flag right there. I love it. So listen to Blank Check on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's 1971, and this Popeye is opening up a can of racism. The movie? The French Connection. Hello, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And Amy, a lot of thoughts about Swing Time happening on our Twitter page. So many thoughts, so many GIFs, so many YouTube clips, so much Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers madness. It's awesome. Well, I think the most interesting thing that I saw was that people agreed with you. This movie did not belong on this list. And there seemed to be a couple of factions going on. Uh, Shall We Dance? Top Hat and The Gay Divorcee were the ones that people, and I'm going to say people, but you were really the only person behind The Gay Divorcee, uh, believe should be on this list. I love The Gay Divorcee now. I know last week I hadn't seen another Ginger Rogers Fred Astaire movie. I went home and picked that one out. It was so awesome. It was so funny. The plot was terrific. It was sexy. It was hilarious. It was, it was, it made sense. It wasn't all about getting your pants cuffed. I'm in love with it. Although yes, according to Twitter, I probably should have watched Top Hat instead because my God, people love that movie. I mean, based on our Twitter poll, three out of four people picked Top Hat over Shall We Dance. Uh, Gay Divorcee was not in there. So I think I want to watch Top Hat. Maybe tonight will be a Top Hat night. Yeah, Paul, I'm going to dare you about something. Okay. Yes. This is my dare. When we finish all 100 movies on this list, okay. I think by then you and I should have an amazing dance routine prepared. <laughs> 
That gives us a lot of time. All right. We're going to need does. all that time. I'm clumsy. I will. Me too. All right. I will take you up on this. Uh, we will have a dance routine when we finish this podcast. Kat, we're going to be calling you. Oh, you know, there was one more thing I wanted to bring up. Um, this past weekend, there was the Pride Parade here in L.A., and I bumped into a couple of people who listened to the show, and they said, you know, there's one thing that you didn't talk about in The Wizard of Oz, and that is its importance in the gay community. Uh, for example, did you know that friend of Dorothy was a term that was used back in the day to describe uh, a gay person? I've heard that, and I've never quite understood the point-to-point connection, but that comes from the Wizard of Oz. Yes, and the same thing for the rainbow flag. And I think the idea was the rainbow flag is this, you know, amazing symbol of inclusiveness, and you get... You, when you look at that rainbow flag, I think you just feel like, oh, you feel great and empowered, and there's just something so beautiful about it. But also, the advocate wrote this kind of very big article about how the Wizard of Oz is so big in gay culture, and you know, they, the advocate says that uh, Judy Garland is like an Elvis for homosexuals, and that there's the idea of somewhere over the rainbow, there's a world where everything is great, and you are accepted for who you are, no matter what you are, and that's how the Wizard of Oz came in. And I'm, I'm oh, doing so a wait, like yeah. the the rainbow flags that we see at Pride Parade are based on the rainbow here, on somewhere over the rainbow. My uneducated and unresearched opinion, just reading two articles, yes, I'm going to say yes to that. <laughs> Well, that makes me extra glad they did not cut that number out of the movie. I agree. All right, so Amy, now it is time to get rid of all the singing and the dancing and uh, move into something a little bit more grittier. Yeah, let's get glum. Let's get our guns out. Let's be gumshoes. Ooh, I like it, gumshoes. I haven't heard that term in a while. I like these guys because they're beat cops. And this is uh, a little movie called... The French Connection. Now, we asked you to come up with a good tagline for The French Connection because this is in a time where films didn't really have, like, a perfect movie tagline. And uh, <laughs> What was the one again for Citizen Kane? It's terrific. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here are some of the taglines that you came up with for The French Connection. Hi, guys. This is Dan. I'm loving the podcast. My tagline for French Connection would be, this Popeye don't need spinach. The French Connection. They're not as aloof as you've been told. Backup? We don't need no stinking backup. Gene Hackman? Yeah, he's intense. Drugs? Yeah, whatever. French Connection. Swipe right for car chases. I actually don't know what the French Connection is about, um, but I'm going to assume it's about drugs. So having said that, my tagline is chase the dragon. And you'll get burned. You know, I'm just going to say it's terrific. That works for everything. (laughs) All right. Let's get into The French Connection. Amy, this movie is fascinating to me. (laughs) Um, Where does this fall on your list of films? Is this something that you have seen a bunch? No, I haven't seen it a bunch. And I'll tell you why up at the front, I don't totally love 70s movies about dudes and cars. Mm. And I don't totally love cop movies. This this is a movie I've been putting off watching actually my entire life as a critic and not telling people. Really? I know. Right out of the gate. Well, I will tell you, I am the exact opposite of you. I love a buddy cop movie. I think this movie is the genesis of our lethal weapons, our running scareds, our all of our classic buddy cop movies. I feel like after watching this movie, I'm like, oh, that's where they got it from. When you think of an action film, this movie does not hit the action movie tropes, because you are not really led on to what is going on in the film until really the very end. I mean, you you are as much in the dark 
as our cops are. And, you know, I'm like, because even when watching it, we, we talk about this all the time. Like, what's the memification of this movie, right? For me, I did see this movie at one point. The only two things I remember is the subway chase. And I remember the drugs are in the car. It's in the car. So I had like a little bit of a heads up, even though I don't remember anything. And that reveal of the drugs being in the car is almost in like the last 20 minutes of the movie. I don't know how I could forget watching an entire movie, but just remember the drugs are in the panels. And I only knew one glimpse of something from the subway chase. And that's because I learned it from The Simpsons. Well, this movie already checks off that box. Um, <laughs> and that's from the episode where Bart's having the worst morning ever and Lisa beats him to the bus and he doesn't make it on the school bus in time and she waves at him. Oh, so that's big. amazing. I mean, this is a movie that I was watching it, looking for the quality of it. It's right. 93 on the list. It's mm-hmm. not like the heavy hitter at the top at the top. And I was watching it trying to figure out why it belongs here, what makes it special. What I find most interesting about Friend Connection isn't really the movie. It's everything around it. It's all the research I did afterwards. And it's even just wondering about the fact that William Friedkin has French Connection here on the AFI Top 100, but not The Exorcist. Not The Exorcist. That's amazing. I didn't right. realize that. Yeah. But if you got people to debate... I think Exorcist would beat out French Connection. Right? I think so, too. I think so, too. I, I wonder if it's an anti-horror film bias that we just have in general. There's not a lot of horror films on the list, period. And it's pretty dirty and violent and vulgar, even though that, you know, it's Satan. But it's, I don't know, if, a, if there is it's a— It's not the clean kind of Satan. Exactly. And I wonder if there's this idea, too, of just the age of everybody when they were voting. Because I did some counting after we watched The French mm-hmm. Connection. And of the films on the top 100 list, 20 of them are from the 70s. That's one in five. That's a lot. That is heavily weighted. And I know we like to talk about how the 70s were the best time for filmmaking. But are they like 20 out of 100 the best time in filmmaking? But I wonder if the people actually voting, if that was their heyday. That's you know what, what I'm, I'm saying? Thinking. Yeah. Because, That's my theory. And you have people who are film fans, people who are making films now uh, or making films in, when this movie was voted on in 2007 that were probably more inspired by the 70s. But then there are new filmmakers who are inspired by the people who are making movies in the 90s. You know, like that kind of, you know, the, the new crop of filmmakers. You know, I, I wonder. I wonder. So Friedkin's this guy who grows up in Chicago, doesn't really leave Chicago very much, randomly gets a job at WGN in Chicago. I say randomly because he was supposed to interview at the building across the street and went to the wrong one. Wow. And they're like, That is the definition of like a random hire. (laughs) Yeah. And they're like, you know what, kid? I like you. And you're plucky. You can work in the mailroom. (laughs) I like that you showed up to the wrong place. That that instills a lot of confidence in me. You got the job, kid. (laughs) So he works his way up through the mailroom. He gets this idea in his head in a couple years that he wants to do a documentary based on a death row case that he's just found out about. There was a man named Paul Crump who had killed a security guard during a robbery, and he was on death row. He was scheduled to be executed, and William Friedkin really felt like the cops had railroaded this guy because he was black. He felt that he should never be killed. He was, like, very against his execution, and he decided he wanted to make a documentary about it. And it was the very first thing he made called The People versus Paul Crump. He then makes a film, a documentary film called The Bold Men, which was about race car drivers and there were car crashes. And so he's doing the heavy speed thing in the 60s. Yeah. And he's making these documentary films about like badasses. And then his third film is another documentary called The Thin Blue Line, which is about beat cops on the narcotics watch arresting guys, but then nothing happens. They're risking their lives and these guys still get kicked back out on the street. So these three documentaries he makes – 
together, I feel like, really inform what the French connection was to me and where he was coming from with it. You know, unlike most action films, and I, I keep on calling it an action film, it's not an action film because I think a lot of the best sequences in this, besides the car chase, are tension scenes. It, it is about tension. But the camera is capturing action. And I, I, I was kind of interested in that, and I went and did some research, and I found out that he would never go through the action scenes with his DP, Enrique Bravo. Uh, he would just say, all right, just keep up with us. Go and, and figure out where we are and, and keep up. So it ha- this movie has this kind of uh, interesting frenetic pacing, like the chase scenes in the opening when uh, Roy Scheider and, uh, and Gene Hackman are chasing the guy out of the bar. It just feels like it, it doesn't, it feels kind of captured instead of shot, if that makes a sense. Freeze! Jimmy, watch it. He's got a knife. Cloudy, Cloudy, watch it. Ah! Hold him up. And the whole movie has that feel of a very, like, I love a gritty New York film. And this feels like, oh, you're in New York. It doesn't feel like, it feels like real people are around. And I found out, yes, there were real people around. As a matter of fact, when they shut down the Brooklyn Bridge, the reason why they shut down the Brooklyn Bridge was because they had the actual cops that this book was based on. And they were calling in favors and literally shutting down the Brooklyn Bridge. During the car scene uh, under the uh, the subway, those are real people. They He was capturing this vibe. And I think that that, to me, made the film feel like, oh, they're really on the street. These are, you know, it doesn't feel manufactured. Yeah, and when you put that context on it, it makes me understand why if it's 1971 and I'm seeing the French connection, I'm like, oh, my fucking God, this is something different. Whereas we're growing up in an era where it's like I've seen a bazillion ripoffs of the French connection. A hundred percent. I mean, this, like I said in the beginning, this movie, I think— is the blueprint of what buddy cop movies become. Some more funny and, you know, and, and some more uh, dark. I mean, but this feels like, yeah, Popeye Doyle's a little bit crazy and, and definitely an angry guy and a racist. We'll get into that. Uh, and then, you know, Roy Scheider's character is is the meeker guy, but it's not so like, I'm getting too old for this shit. Kinda, yeah, it's, it's not, but I'm bummed. Yeah, it's not like they're not heightened. It's funny to see the actual thing that's been photocopied in a way. Exactly. In fact, if they added in scenes that the real cops had done, you know, the two cops that this is yeah. based on, uh, a guy named Eddie Egan and his partner Sonny Grosso, they were New York cops. They did book like a 1962 heroin smuggling ring yeah. involving a car shoved full of heroin. I didn't know if this was heroin or cocaine for the longest time. I'm so bad on guessing on what it is in a film. I'm like, yeah. a white powder is a white powder to me. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I got it was heroin because I feel like French people do heroin. I feel like it's a oh, cooler drug. It's, it's a, Yeah, it's classier. Cocaine's a little dirtier. Like, hey, uh, but I don't know I don't know how much. Like, bonjour, monsieur. <laughs> I don't know how much coke is coming out of France. But here's an interesting Good fact point. about the heroin in this film. Uh, they used real heroin. Shut up. Yes, uh, because they wanted to get the authenticity right in a lot of these scenes. So in that scene where they're drug testing the heroin, it was real heroin. The seventies. Uh, yeah, I mean, percent the seventies. That 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 blew my mind. Um, <gasps> well, on that note, when they got some of the gun sounds, some of the the sound effects of the shotguns, yeah. was actually Friedkin on the Fox lot without asking permission, recording himself firing a shotgun and then getting in trouble, but saying, you know what, your your gunshot sounds aren't cool. I don't like them. Oh, but back to Egan. Oh, yeah. I was gonna say when Egan was a real cop, Eddie Egan, the guy who is the Popeye character in the yeah. film. 
he would do a thing where he would dress up like Santa Claus. Okay. And he would just hang out like Santa Claus on the street in Harlem looking out for people doing drug deals. And if he saw a drug deal, he would ring his bell twice and somebody would come out and arrest them. Oh, and wow. And that way, he arrested, I think, like hundreds of people over a week. And if they had that in a buddy cop movie, I'd be like, yeah. God, whatever. But the real dude did do that. You know, I said that this, this movie has a very, to me, it felt very patient. Like you're existing here. Nothing felt exceptionally forced, with the exception of the car chase scene, which was shot very practically. So, yes, it could be possible, right? Uh, But the movie isn't like a going and guns blazing explosion type of film. You know, it's it's a lot of real police work. And so I want to maybe walk you through two things. Um, Walk me through. Let's do the New York walk with a slice of pizza. Let's do it. (laughs) So, like, so... In that sense that you don't know what's going on, I was really taken aback by this opening interrogation scene. I think we have it queued up here. North or south? North or south? I don't know what you're talking about, man. I don't know. I'm asking south. you what side of the street he lives on. Hey, shithead. When was the last time you picked your feet? Huh? What's he talking about? I've got a man in Poughkeepsie who wants to talk to you. Have you ever been in Poughkeepsie? Huh? Have you ever been in Poughkeepsie? Hey, man. Come on, give me a break. Hey, yeah, I don't know what you're on, talking about, it. man. Let me hear you say it. Come on. Have you ever been in Poughkeepsie? You've been in Poughkeepsie, haven't you? I want to hear it! Come on! Yes, yes, I've been been there, right? Yeah. yeah. You sat on the edge of the bed, didn't you? You took off your shoes, put your finger between your toes, and picked your feet, didn't you? That's it! Yes! All right. You put a shield on my partner. You know what that means? God damn it! So when I saw that, I was like, what what is going on? What the fuck is happening? Like, because... I think I'm following the plot, and then Poughkeepsie's in there, and I, and it doesn't ever come back. And I was really like, okay. And I found out that that is something that the real Popeye Doyle did to suspects. He would s- start saying all these things that were very confusing to him. It was kind of a good cop, bad cop play. Um, Except he was both the good cop and the randomly muttering insane cop? Well, he was basically creating questions that were impossible to answer and confusing. So then when his partner would ask him or he would ask him, like, the real question, it would be easier to answer. It would be like, he's like, have you been to Poughkeepsie? And he's like, uh, yeah. And, like, he doesn't know what that line of questioning is. So then when he goes, who's your dealer? He's like, uh, you know, Fat Tony. It's like, oh. So it was like this way that they played with each other. I think we're in a culture right now where everything is laid out to you. Everything is like, you understand, like, if we saw this now, you know, they would walk away and be like, oh, you use that Poughkeepsie thing again. It's like, no, it, it just, it's it's all for affectation. Apparently, even uh, Gene Hackman and Roy Scheiner said that they improvised all their dialogue, uh, even though the, I think the Academy Award winning screenwriter of this film did not agree. Uh, yeah, I've heard some fights on that because apparently, like... William Friedkin became really good buddies with the real Popeye and the real Popeye's They were on set every day. Even before that. Because it took them two years to get this movie greenlit even, to get it like approved. Because the book came out, the French Connection book, and it was the true life story of this actual caper. The book was apparently really boring. William Friedkin read it thinking it was like maybe something he should be interested in. And I was like, God, it sucks. But then he met the cops and he was like, you guys are great. Like he spends forever before this movie gets greenlit going to bars, watching the real Egan, watching the real Popeye, like take drugs, shove them into a martini shaker and ruin them. He watches all of these shakedowns happen exactly the way that he later filmed them. So he wanted to get it exactly right. He recorded the real dudes doing the real stuff and then would yell at Hackman, Gene Hackman, and be like, get it right. Get it like this guy. And Gene Hackman wanted to quit. 
because he was like, this sucks. I'm not doing it the way these real guys are doing it. You're pressuring me too much to hit these random notes exactly right. Basically, like, William Friedkin tried to do this, like, jujitsu on Gene Hackman and just make him mad all the time well, so yeah. that he could get that anger. And he quit the second day into the yeah. film. I actually pulled a clip of Friedkin talking about how he used to rile up Gene Hackman. I worked with Hackman in a way that I've never worked with anyone else. I knew I had to get him angry. And so I would, it's really embarrassing. I mean, but I would say things to Gene like, we'd, we'd do a shot, and I like one take. I love one take. Instead of saying cut, I would say, oh, Jesus Christ. I'd say, Are you kidding me? I would say, pal, you better get a day job. You know, you, you better look for something else because this isn't working out. And he actually quit the film in, on the second day. And his agent, Sue Menger, said, well, that's fine, Gene. If you do that, you'll own the picture. You know, you will own everything they've spent. So Gene stuck around and stuck it out. But I would get his anger to a point where he would finish a take filled with rage, and then walk off the set for the rest of the day. And that's exactly what I wanted. And I know that was a long clip, but I thought it was just fascinating to hear the director be like, that's how he got that performance. I mean... And then Gene Hackman gets an Oscar. Yes, and one of the first people he thanks, William Freakin. Billy. <laughs> it's kind of great seeing Gene Hackman with hair, too. Oh, I love the G I love this Popeye Doyle character. But I thought it was interesting. You don't often hear, like, an actor having a hard time portraying someone who is a racist. Like, it was against his moral code. So much so that they did that alleyway scene that we just played, uh, one of the first scenes in the film. And once Freed can believe that he got his anger to a certain degree— that was the last scene they shot because like now you'll be able to do that scene the right way. Yeah. So directors are evil. Yeah, of course, to get that performance. <laughs> hey, look, he walked away with an Oscar. His life was forever changed. But that push-pull makes sense. It kind of mirrors how I was feeling even watching this film. Like mm -hmm. This was a strange film to me because I feel like I'm always fighting off that idea of the hero who's presented, the cop who walks into the mm -hmm. frame is the good guy. And you're always wondering— Am I crazy? Is everybody else watching Popeye Doyle and thinking he's a fucking asshole psychopath? Like, yeah. Does the movie think that? I couldn't really tell when I watched this at first because there's some heroic shots of him. You want to think that Popeye's this jerk and the film knows he's a jerk. And the ending, the beautiful coda at the ending, you're like, okay, 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 good, good I'm yeah. not crazy. But then there's some stuff like when they arrest the French people at the very end, you get this heroic shot of Popeye Doyle on the bridge looking like the guy who saves the day. And I was just churning in my stomach about how to feel. Well, here's what I would say about that. His character in that moment on the bridge, when he kind of does the wave, re, you know, recalling the wave from that fantastic tailing sequence in the film where he's uh, telling uh, that uh, the French drug dealer, it's all ego. It's not like it's not like New York is viewing him as the hero. It's like, motherfucker, you cross me, I got you. Like, it, it's it's purely ego. And I think... What I liked about this film was they didn't comment on it. It was just captured. And so at the end, when Popeye Doyle is, you think, as a viewer, at least I did, he's going to kill the Frenchman now. He kills another cop, which didn't happen in real life. It actually was only added in because the actual uh, Egan told Friedkin, 
he goes, ah, I would kill. I, I, I wish we could kill that guy. And then Freak was like, yeah, let's kill him. So they actually <laughs> killed the guy. <laughs> that makes sense because I heard that when the real cop who this shot cop yeah. is based on saw this film in a theater, he stood up in the middle of the theater and yelled bullshit and then <laughs> sued for $6 million. Whoa. And then settled for 10000 That I mean, it's crazy they killed a real life character. But it's interesting, though, because it's like that's a heroic moment at the end. You think he's going to take down the French drug dealer, and he kills another cop, which he's already been accused of earlier in the film as killing a cop. So he's reckless. And the last thing you see, it's like, you killed this guy. And he's like, fine, I'm, go- I'm going off. And then it ends with this one gunshot. That's how the movie was supposed to end. The post credit sequence that you described was added in by the studio. Oh, now see, I love this post credit sequence because to me it has that 70s nihilism. Yeah. Of you've gone through this whole movie, you're rooting for it. And I'll admit, even at the end I kept thinking, is heroin really a shoot-a-person crime? Right. It, can it just be like an arrest-a-person crime? Yeah. When you realize that after all of this, most of the people get off with just a slap on the wrist. The person who gets the longest prison time is the most innocent one, the I French know. TV personality. And that – these two cops still get to be cops. They're just reassigned. And I love that gloominess, which is why it's so messed up to me that French Connection 2 is like, no, 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 no. And in French Connection 2, then Papa is like, you know what? I'm going to go to France and I'm going to find that guy and I'm going to shoot him this time. And he does. And, and it's can, like, what? Can we talk about French Connection 2? Because I did not understand that that movie actually even happened until I started doing research about this. What horseshit to make <laughs> A sequel to this movie. This is a movie based on a real-life situation, real cops, but then they just go, forget all of that. And again, this movie is setting like a precedent for our future cop movies. It's like, this is a great contained story. The Die Hard, I probably referenced Die Hard probably too much on this podcast, but like the Die Hard of its time. It's like, great, interesting story, cops, you know, in a, you know, a situation. But then they go, all right, let's, now he's in Russia and he's going to do this. And it's like, well, like they're just, con- they want more, but there is no more to tell. The interesting thing was that story, not to go to France and then they like shoot him up with heroin and then he's got to get over being addicted to heroin. Like, what the fuck are we doing? It's a re- it's not Forrest Gump. You yeah. can't just make that happen. Cops are not James Bond. Right. James Bond is James Bond for a reason because he hangs out with people named Pussy Galore. Like, yeah. I love the New York that Popeye Doyle lives in in this film, the real New York. Yes. I think I have – if there is an overlap between me and the 70s dudes, the mm-hmm. 70s, like, macho dudes, it's that I would love to live in New York where, like, it looks really shitty and where you just buy, like, a grape drink in the subway oh. and everyone's just chilling. Like, How my- great was that subway? I mean, that subway, I was like, oh, I want that. I, I lived in New York for a long time and I was like – that's the New York that I love. It, it probably was a place where you would get stabbed with a shiv like Roy Scheider's character did. But uh, it there is something so great about like that little whatever stand that was. It looked like a, like a, a hot dog stand, like a hot dog on a stick stand or something. <laughs> I mean, I have a theory about the president, which is that the, our president has not actually lived in his own city, really. Like he gets driven around in limousines oh, yeah. and his only image of New York is just from the movies of the 70s because he hasn't really kept up with movies. The occasional Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah. So when he describes what New York is like, I think he's just thinking of movies like The French Connection. Although I don't think he would have watched The French Connection because it sounds foreign. Oh, yeah. He wouldn't have wanted to watch a French movie at all. I mean, I enjoy the mathematical look of people following each other on sidewalks. But it made me have this question really early on, which is racism aside. Mm -hmm. Is Popeye Doyle a good cop? Because there's that great sequence 
uh, where um, with the well, actually, I'm using great a little bit of air quotes around it. Where the French guys decide they're hungry, they go to a, a French restaurant because mm-hmm. I guess you're French, and even when you're in New York, you're like, <laughs> no, 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 let me have the escargot in New York in the 70s. <laughs> uh, okay, sure, that's fine. They're gonna order the French food. Right. And Gene Hackman's spying on them from outside, eating a slice of pizza as like you know, crime doesn't pay. Crime definitely pays in this scenario. Right. And he's bitterly eating his piece of pizza, but. In order to get that contrast shot of, like, sad cop, happy criminal, you can see Pop Boy Doyle through the window of the restaurant just, like, watching the dudes. And you're like, man, are you hiding? Like, you're the worst, secu- you're the worst like, sneaker-arounder cop guy ever. I, well, I lost the ability to say the word. No, I like sneaker-arounder. No, but I, but I, what I liked about it was they were flawed as investigators. They're not James Bond. So they do get busted. Like when uh, Roy Scheider runs into the garage and literally bumps into uh, Boca, they get caught a lot. They get made a lot. That's why there's like 10 of them out on the street because, you know, it's not, I think the movie that we're used to seeing and the cop portrayals that we're used to seeing is they're so ahead of the game. These are New York City beat cops. And I feel like they're, they're, they're dressing up like Santa. They're doing these things. They're busting little drug dealers. And like any great story, they kind of get caught up in a much bigger story based on a pure hunch of just seeing something incongruous out in society. And I feel like we're not used to that that version of cop anymore. We're used to the version of cop who's smarter than everybody else, knows everything else. These guys don't know. Like there is a moment when they are just, they're like, ah, well, we don't, we don't have it. Like we got this car, we've dismantled the car. We don't got it. Like we, we thought we had it. We don't have it. And well, and there's this bit where you look at the cop's office fairly early on in, in the film when you go to the narcotics squad office, and it's almost like they're doing a butterfly collection of what drugs are because oh, they've yeah. got this, like, back panel display of, like, here's a pipe. Here's what a bag of weed looks yeah. like. Here's, like, razor blades. And it's just it's just – it's like you're in a museum, the museum of, hey, cops, be cool. This is what it all looks like. Okay. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have a very special guest. I want to tell you about a brand new show called Gossip. Tell me about it, Paul. It's on Stitcher, and it's the first ever comedic soap opera podcast. And it's created by actor and comedian Allison Raskin. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. But, oh, my God, what is it going to be about? Oh, my gosh. Well, every week, like, these three unlikely friends, like, just talk about the latest rumors floating around in their not-so-traditional suburban town called Golden Acres. Oh, my God, that sounds real dirty. I can't wait. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you're a fan of shows like Jane the Virgin or Desperate Housewives, you will love gossip. I mean, plus, there are special appearances from Earwolf's favorites like John Gabris or Tawny Newsom. Like, oh, my God, I love Tawny Newsom. I can't wait to hear, like, what she's doing. What? I, I mean, it's so crazy. I mean, if you want to listen to Gossip, you can. It's on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your shows. Oh, I love a good melodrama. Let's get into it. All right, we have someone special on the line. He is a former SF policeman. He spent decades on the force. He specialized in robberies. Before that, he lived in New York during the time of the French Connection. And while he was a police officer, he also started acting in movies as a police officer. So he knows police officer movies from one side of the law and from the actor side of the law. And he also knew the real-life Sonny Grosso, the character played in French Connection by Roy Scheider. So, hi, Brian, and let's start off by having you tell everybody on the show a little bit about your background. Okay, so uh, I'm a New York City kid, born and raised. I uh, did a tour in the military from 68 to 73 in Vietnam from 70 to 71. Uh, 1982, I tested for San Francisco PD, 
I got hired after a job freeze in 1984. I did 28 years as a San Francisco cop, 14 in uniform. Then I did 14 as a detective, but in San Francisco, we're called inspectors, like Dirty Harry, Inspector Callahan, that kind of thing. Um, And then in in 1989, um, my partner and I, when we were in uniform, got wind that Clint Eastwood was doing his last Dirty Harry, which was ironically called Deadpool. I ended up getting 32 other real San Francisco cops to play bit part scenes as extras in Deadpool. And, huh. and uh, after that, I got the bug. And one thing led to another where uh, if you go on IMDb, all my parts have been one thing, one thing only, a cop playing a cop. And then in 1990, uh, Top Cops was this TV show CBS was doing, which was being produced by Sonny Grosso. And because when he retired from NYPD, Hollywood liked him. Where Eddie Egan, the guy that Gene Hackman played, Gene Hackman didn't like Eddie Egan because he was a bona fide racist. We got taken up to Canada, to Toronto, and you basically got your 15 minutes of fame if you got picked by Sonny Grosso for Top Cops. As a cop who has so much experience in the field and so much experience on a movie set, are movies about cops usually accurate? Like, what are the big things that you see go right or wrong? Well, I mean, I... I, um, I sat as an extra in a, in a homicide squad scene with uh, Ashley Judd in the movie Twisted with Samuel Jackson. And the movie just sucked. Just, <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were doing stuff that just didn't make sense. Like the gist of it was every time she went out drinking, she would black out. And then she would wake up with the guy that she was having sex with. He would be dead. And, and then she That's thought not she realistic. was the murderer. No, I mean, who blacks out and commits murder when they black out? I think when you black out, you black out. I don't think you can, you can uh, go into a second personality to, uh, to um, commit murders. So I have a couple questions for you. We, you know, we just watched The sure. French Connection, and there's a couple things in it, and I was wondering if they are actual things that you can do as a police officer. Um, you know, uh, Egan in the movie Popeye Doyle, he dresses up as a uh, – Santa Claus on Santa the street, Claus. right? Yeah. And, and, and the line is, pick your toes in Poughkeepsie. Right, right. <laughs> There's a method behind that. Oh, yeah, what's the method? Okay, so when you read Miranda to a suspect, right? say at the end of the Miranda, do you understand your rights? And then the guy acknowledges that he understands his rights. And you, you hit him with a question. Like if it's a teenager that just vandalized five cars in a, in a, in a suburban neighborhood, you go to the teenager, right after you, you get Miranda, you go, what were you thinking? And then and with that, you just sit back and you don't say another word. And if the teenager is naive enough to say, well, you know, I, I was having a bad day and it took my frustrations out on those windshields. You no, know, he, he's incriminating himself as he's talking. All you did was say, what were you thinking? Right. Or like you say to a guy that just committed domestic violence, say, you must have a pretty small penis, huh? <laughs> and yet this whole thing's on tape. Right. And the jury's going to hear it. You know, and as shocking as it is, you, you sat on the edge of the bed and you picked your toes in Poughkeepsie or whether you're saying to a guy, uh, you got a small penis, don't you? And you just left it an open ended question. And in whatever incriminating comment, the bad guy starts ranting at you. Well, that's all on tape. Well, what do you think huh. of what do you think of shootouts in cop movies like in the French Connection? Well, I mean, uh, well, the shootouts in the French Connection is actually the foot chase. We gets the guy at the top of the uh, train station. I mean, the guy who just murdered somebody in the park uh, is chasing a felon. It is 19... 
society when rules of engagement are totally different from rules of engagement today. Back then, I think you could shoot a fleeing felon. You can't do that today. Right. But oh, and you guys know that all the dope that they got out of the French Connection all got stolen out of the property clerk's room in NYPD. We yeah. heard that. What we, is the buzz on that? What happened? Well, well, I mean, a bunch of cops that worked in the property room uh, got indicted. I know that. It was another scandal that hit NYPD, and it was really sad because uh, I had an uncle that was on NYPD. About this, he, he was going on about the same time it happened. You know, there's a lot of hardworking cops on NYPD. Then there's guys that just don't have any business applying for the job because they don't have the moral fiber to do the job. Well, what do hardworking cops like your uncle think of characters like Popeye who make cops look really aggressive and racist? You know, like I've, I I lived in a, uh, an environment, worked in an environment where, um, you know, other legends had been on the department way before me and you hear the stories and, and you got to take it with a grain of salt saying, well, I was different time, different era that doesn't fly now. You can't do stuff like that. You can't, you can't take a, uh, like in Serpico, uh, the rapist is taken into a room and they keep hitting the guy with the kid with a phone book. I mean, yeah, the kid did do a rape, but, uh, that's torture. That's just, that's freaking right. wrong. That kind of behavior, um, it, it gives an impression to the public, I think, I think, it gives the impression to the public that, uh, well, that still goes on today. Right. And that's not right. Or I've always you wondered know, if it makes, like, guys the wrong kind of guy want to be cops because they think it's a place where they can do that. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's intense screening now. Now it's, they want, they want a nerd that can run eight-minute mile, you know. Right. And it's, uh, it's a different, different era. You know, a lot of these cop movies show, you know, a police officer who gets very uh, into a case and kind of takes matters into their own hands. Is that ever really the case? I mean, we see, you know, Popeye Doyle running under the L with his car, you know, doing these stakeouts that seemingly are unapproved. Do you have any of that flexibility, uh, you know, when you were on the force to really follow your gut? Well, I mean, I, I had a lot of cases because I was in a robbery unit for about 14 years I did on SFPD as an inspector, 12 of those years was in an armed robbery unit. And I had a few cases that I worked uh, a tremendous amount of overtime on, um, lost a lot of sleep, uh, even lost a relationship once uh, with a, a girlfriend of mine over me not being there when she wanted me. I mean, I had a, a case where uh, about two years before I retired, um, these Ukrainian kids, all of them over 18, just graduated out of high school. All the kids were dry, uh, their fathers, uh, three of the fathers of these five kids, three of the fathers were limo drivers. They drove Lincoln town cars for a living. A few of the cases I had where these kids would come around the corner on victims and shock them by all of a sudden pulling a knife and saying, give me your stuff. Three of the cases, the, the, the victim said, well, they got into a town car and fled. Now, when's the last time you heard of a suspect leaving in a limo? And, you know, it didn't make sense. Anyway, those guys, uh, we had a lieutenant and a rookie in an undercover car, female lieutenant with a, a male rookie partner uh, in an undercover car, just driving around the neighborhood trying to look like, trying to be a victim. And sure as shit, the, these kids picked that car to cut off. They were going to make him the victim. But that car, surprise, surprise, was a police car. And called in the cavalry, and the cavalry surrounded the bad guy's car. And next thing I know, I had my suspects. 
you know, the suspects that I was looking for for months. That one, uh, I worked so much overtime, I bought a carbon fiber bicycle out of it. <laughs> oh, wow. So, when did you first see the French Connection? Uh, I saw the French Connection in the 70s at a movie theater. So I was, you know, totally in that GTO chasing underneath the veil. I mean, that is one adrenaline rush thing. Well, so when you knew Sonny, was he happy with French Connection? No, the way I get the story, too, is that the real hero in the thing, the guy that sat on the, the candy store where they made the, the folded the newspapers and sold them after nightclubbing all night, that was all Sonny Grosso, not Eddie Egan. The way the story goes is that the real hero in the whole thing, uh, the real brains behind the act, was right. Sonny Grosso. You feel like Sonny didn't quite get his due in the movie? He might not got his due, but he sure got it after the movie. I mean, Hollywood embraced it. Matter of fact, Sonny, you know the guy that runs up to the stairs with the flowers and in, in, um, uh, in Godfather where uh, Pacino thinks it's a hitman coming, but it's actually uh, the florist guy? Yeah. Right. That, they, that, that's Sonny Grosso, oh. and they gave him that, that big part. Brian, I'm curious about this. I'm not an actor, but Paul here is an actor. And if he were to play a cop, what are some of the things he'd have to get right, like posture-wise? I've literally played a cop like four times in movies. <laughs> I literally have. I'll give you this. Like, uh, as long as you, sh you show up in the set ready to work and you don't look like you're there to be an extra, you're there to be a, a cop. I actually, I actually stole the scene. It's documented. I, I didn't mean to do it, but... Uh, in Ant-Man with Paul Rudd. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a scene where uh, Paul Rudd hops over a wall and he's elated that he just put the suit back in Michael Douglas' safe. Right. And just as he comes over the wall, he's got a stupid grin on his face that he was successful by doing the re-burglary. Yeah. And the lights come on and it's cops around him. Well, I'm a cop who walks up and handcuffs him and takes him away. And I stole the scene from a contracted actor he wasn't the image that the directors thought they were going to get. Right. And he had problems standing like a boxer. He had problems with drawing. Even though it was a fake gun, it was a real holster. So I walked up twice to show him how to do it. And I walked back to the police car door that I was supposed to stand behind. And then next thing I know, I get tapped on the shoulder and got brought up to where the uh, director was. They asked me, I was a real cop. And I said, yes, how would you do the scene? And I changed the scene. I, they wanted Paul Rudd to go face down. The line the actor was given was, get on the ground, get on the ground. Well, I had him change it to, get on your knees, get on your knees. The scene's like four seconds long, but, it, you know, I stole the scene. I love so, it. Well, all right, so the lesson thought. is, don't do a movie when you're on set because I might lose my job. So, well, Brian, this anyway. has been so interesting. Thank you so much for taking a little bit of your Monday today to talk to us about this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. No, it's not... So, Amy, did you know that Gene Hackman was not the first choice to play this role? He might have been close to the last choice. Yeah. Like, if this is number 93 on the list, he might have been the 93rd choice. I mean, this is so nuts because it was Steve McQueen, Lee Marvin, James Caan, Paul Newman, Robert Mitchum, Peter Boyle, Jackie Gleason. All, I could see all of them doing this role. Um, you know, they all turned the role down. He even wanted a journalist to do the role. Jimmy Breslin, who I know as a journalist from, I mean, I don't know if he's nationally known, but I know him as a New York journalist. Like, they put him in the movie, a fucking newspaper journalist, like, which is crazy. I mean, when you're talking about Steve McQueen and, like, a newspaper writer, but they fired Breslin because he couldn't drive. 
And Gene Hackman could drive. That's what you get for being a New Yorker, Breslin. That's you it. You gotta learn how to drive. He didn't even have to audition. I mean, Gene Hackman wasn't a nobody when this happened. Like, he'd already been nominated for two Best Supporting Actor nominations. Like, he's kind of, oh, to wow. me, like a, a Richard Jenkins type. Yeah. Where everybody's like, I like that guy. Critics, we... Critics do this. We take note of somebody, and we're rooting for them to get that best actor performance. Yeah. And part of the irony of it is, you know, Gene Hackman was, um, he wanted to be an actor since the 50s. He studied at the Pasadena Playhouse right here with Dustin Hoffman, and they were both voted least likely to succeed. What? Yeah. Who gives out that in an acting school? That's crazy. It's brutal. It gets even worse. So Gene Hackman's like, well, fuck you, L.A., and he moves to New York, and he decides to, like, be a doorman while trying to get into theater roles, trying to build his career. As being a doorman at a Howard Johnson's, he runs into the instructor at the Pasadena Playhouse who told him he sucked, and the guy goes, see, Hackman, I told you you wouldn't amount to anything. Oh, my God. I want to punch that guy in the face. <laughs> and then, in a short order, he gets nominated for three Academy Awards and wins Best Actor. And he's like, fuck you. Well, but- can we talk about this Best Actor thing? Because this is really interesting to me. All right, French Connection, I mean, it's swept. At this and the, and the 44th Academy Awards, picture, director, actor, screenplay, editing, it really just uh, the only people who really lost was Roy Scheider lost and uh, Best Supporting. I Best get Cin- why Roy Scheider lost. I do you? too. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And then Best Cinematography, though. Oh, and- I wonder if it's that thing like the way Tangerine didn't win for Best Cinematography. Oh yeah. Where when you're doing a future look, people just want you to do that static, glorious shot. Right. Like, the really you know, pretty and. Yeah. What yeah. one instead? Well, this is what I was going to say. This is an amazing year at the Academy Awards. So for Best Picture, it's Clockwork Orange, Fiddler on the Roof. The Last Picture Show, and then a movie I've never heard of, Nicholas and Alexandra. But so that's Best Picture. And then you go for Best Director that year, Kubrick, uh, Norman Jewison, and Peter Bogdanovich, same ones. But it's an interesting year. I mean, that's a pretty, I mean, Last Picture Show, Fiddler on the Roof, and Clockwork Orange are films that I think have some legs to them. Well, yeah, I mean, Clockwork Orange is higher on the list than French Connection. It's that sort of thing of, okay, you won the Oscar, but I will win the long vote. I'll be number yeah. 70 on the Ooh, AFI. Look at that. Oscar fun fact about that ceremony. Mm-hmm. William Friedkin almost didn't make it to the show because his car broke down at a gas station when he was headed to the Oscars. And it was L.A., of course. And, you know, like, you can't get a cab in L.A. Like, yeah. you can't, you're actually right. legally not allowed to wave down a cab. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. You're not allowed to, like, summon them. They can only arrive at hotels. You can call uh, them, but you okay. can't be on the street and, like, yo, yo, cab. You can't hail a cab. Yeah, you can't hail a cab. So he's at this gas station freaking out, like, I'm going to miss the fucking Oscars and I'm nominated. <laughs> And he, like, goes to a guy who's pumping his gas, and he's like, buddy, can you take me to the Oscars? And the guy's like, I'm going to the Valley. My wife and I have a date. And he's like, I'll give you 100 bucks." And the guy's like, no. He says, I'll give you 200 bucks." And the guy says, will you call my wife and explain why yeah. this is happening? Will you call her after the show and tell, him, yeah. tell her, like, for real, this is why I was late picking her up for this date? And he's like, deal. So the guy drives him to the Oscars and then waves the 200 bucks and says, it's fine. And William Friedkin wins, and then William Friedkin calls his wife. Oh, that's it? I thought he would give him something else. <laughs> he just he just made good he on the deal. Like, he just called him back. Yeah. I thought he was going to be like, he, and he gave him his Oscar. You know? <laughs> um, so, you know, I know we talked a little bit about the reality and how they shot without, you know, they shot without permits and they were on these things. Um, I just thought it was interesting to bring up uh, the, the chase scene. You mentioned earlier that they wanted to create a, a chase similar to what they saw in Bullet, but not derivative of what they had in Bullet. And in reading about this chase scene where uh, Gene Hackman's character is in a car that he's commandeered chasing a subway, which is overhead. Police emergency, I need your car. car. 
great sequence. There's so many things that go wrong on this. Uh, the They didn't want an actor to play the MTA driver, so they actually got a real MTA driver, but then he didn't have a SAG card. Then, you know, and uh, basically they were just, then, then one MTA person did have a SAG card, and they were, like, th- this whole thing was shot with this real, um, Indie spirit. Yeah, that I, I feel don't like, even think they got real permission to shoot on the train. From what I've heard, yeah. they had to beg this one guy with connections, and they're like, "What do we have to do to bribe you to let us shoot the train sequence on your train?" And he said, "Give me forty thousand dollars and a one-way ticket to Jamaica because I'm losing my job if I do this." And oh, they did. They gave God. him forty thousand dollars and a one-way ticket to, to Jamaica I, for letting them shoot on the train. I love that. He now the thing that brought my my attention to this scene. Too is I think it shares similarities to the Ben Hur chasing that we spoke <gasps> about. It took five weeks to shoot this. Um, no one wanted to drive the car because they wanted to do it practically. So Gene Hackman was driving, but all the other rest of the crew were like, I have a wife and kids. I'm not getting in this car and going 90 miles an hour. Gene Hackman even crashed the car into a pillar. They used it in the film. Uh, like it was dangerous. They had two cars, they had cameras out of the car. Like, and then when the most dangerous stuff was going on, when he was flying down there with real people on either side of the road, it was Friedkin driving because no one else would do it. Like, and that energy of that badass director who was like, like giving out forty thousand dollars, driving his own car. Like, there is something about that. I know that famously Friedkin also like slapped the priest in The Exorcist, you know, to get the performance that he needed. Um, he was a slapping guy. He slapped uh, people, I think, in his documentaries even before this. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I just, there was something that's really interesting about wow, that sequence. Wow, there's going to be a real streak of directors slapping people to get performances. That happened in, in Wizard of Oz, too. Remember? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, I, I don't know, there's something really interesting about those chase sequences that look so kind of flawless, but to go five weeks to shoot that sequence. Uh, and I think they, it took that long because it was down and dirty. They could probably only do moments of it at a time and then re-rig and rewire. You know, the budget of this movie was like $1.8 million and they went way over budget. So that's what it ended up at. And it made $51 million. It's like, a, I mean, that's it's huge. It's outrageous. I mean, the studio had zero belief in this. This is one of those stories where they put it out expecting it was going to be a disaster. Yeah. They didn't even want to call it the French Connection. They wanted to call it, at first they wanted to call it Popeye. Oh, and Freakin was like, oh, come the fuck on. We can't call this chip Popeye. Yeah, you can't call it Popeye. I mean, for yeah. so many reasons. And then they're like, Doyle. And he was like, no, Ugh. that's good. Like, do you know why Popeye called himself Popeye, by why? the way? Because he would tackle a suspect and then he'd flex his muscles. Amazing. And so he fought for the French Connection. He won, which is perfect because like, the French Connection, I feel like, doesn't r- ripple through that many films no. directly, like in tone perhaps and in style. But in terms of illusion, the main way that you see the French Connection is just like title jokes. I mean, like everything has called itself the something connection after this. Right. Mainly TV shows here. I'll, I got a couple. Yeah. The Partridge Family did an episode called The Partridge Connection. Love it. The Fonzie Show did an episode called The French Correction. <laughs> Dallas did an episode called The Caribbean Connection. Inspector Gadget did an episode called The Japanese Connection. Dream On <laughs> did an episode called The French Conception. And The Simpsons, of course, our beloved Simpsons, did an episode called The Springfield Connection. And Friedkin himself named his biography The Friedkin Connection. Oh. My goodness, that is hilarious. I, it's funny how those terms get into popular culture. I wanted to ask you what you thought of the movie poster. And now I'm going to show it to you uh, and I'll explain it to you too. So the movie poster for French Connection shows the main or the number two bad guy in the film getting shot in the back by Gene Hackman's character, Popeye Doyle. That is the poster. That is 
to me, the biggest death in the movie because he doesn't kill the main bad guy. That, that, that's the number two. That would be like showing James Bond killing odd job or, you know, or, you know, or seeing like, you know, the poster for the Fast and Furious movies, like, you know, the rock killing Charlize Theron. Yeah, spoiler alert. Sorry. But, you know, it's like, what do you think about that? That like it, I, when you said the, the the studio didn't have faith, I'm like, did they go like we got to show that it has action? I mean, that's not a random moment. The look of it is different even than really how we see in the film. In the film, we see it more from Hackman's point of view, yeah. right? Looking up at the stairs, shooting the guy from far away. Yeah. Here, Hackman's the tiny guy in the background, and the emphasis is on this man's face. I mean, I guess when Hackman's not famous, why even put the emphasis on him anyway? I think part of it maybe is that the guy that who gets shot is from the movie Z, which. Z is phenomenal. It comes okay. out a couple years before this. It's like another gritty thriller, a lot of espionage, a lot of intrigue set in um, the political activists of Greece. Okay. It was like a true life thriller. And William Friedkin was like heavily, heavily influenced by that too. Mm. So maybe they're like, did you like the Z, this amazing fucking movie? Yeah. This guy also gets killed here. You're going to love it. Wow. You know, it's so interesting uh, talking about that, casting that guy too, because you know that Fernando Ray, the main, uh, the main bad guy in the film, was cast by accident. What? Yeah. So um, basically Friedkin had instructed his casting director to hire an actor that he had admired from Bunuel's Belle du Jour. And he wanted Francisco Rabal, but instead he got Fernando Ray, uh, who was also in a Benoit film called uh, Viradinia. I don't know if I'm mispronouncing it. I apologize. So basically he got there and he's like, all right, yeah, this guy works. So and I don't think that uh, Fernando Ray. French. Yeah, <laughs> I have no idea. Like, So he got this actor and he's like, all right, he'll work. And I think, you know, it's, just, it's amazing how, I mean, back in the 70s, you could do something like you, the actor arrives on set and you're like, that's not the guy we wanted. I believe also Fernando Ray did not speak English. That's why he doesn't speak in the film. Uh, he only speaks French in the film. Uh, you know, so that is another interesting side note on this. What would you do if you ever showed up on set for a movie and they're like, not that guy? By the way, I've had that experience. What? Yeah, I was in a movie called Meet Dave. Did you have a chance to see the film Meet Dave uh, in your reviewing uh, moments? No? Okay. I've never seen Meet Dave. It's an Eddie Murphy movie where Eddie Murphy plays a spaceship in the shape of Eddie Murphy. And then there's a mini Eddie Murphy piloting the Eddie Murphy spaceship. I go into this story in great detail on the fantastic podcast. I was there too, uh, because in that one I was there, but I am not in the film. Uh, but basically I was cast, um, I guess off my headshot and the director said, Oh, from your headshot, I thought you were a fat guy. That's why uh, this doesn't work. <laughs> and then I got fired. I mean, that's the very short version you got of fired it. For not being fat enough, not, not being fat enough to be Lieutenant buttocks. Um, again, I tell the story in great detail on I Was There Too. But uh, yes, yeah, so I know exactly what it's like to be cast and be, and be the wrong person. Let me give you a couple facts about the 70s because it is interesting. 1971 is... A very interesting time. We talked about some of the movies up for Best Picture, but that was also the year that Shaft comes out and Dirty Harry. Shaft, I think, is actually written by the writer of The French Connection, Ernest uh, Tidyman. You know, they, we're in this interesting time where it's also like you have TV shows like All My Children, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, The Odd Couple, and The Partridge Family on the air. You know, the uh, those pins like Have a Nice Day, the you know, smiley face pins. Uh, talk 50, about Forrest Gump. Oh, my gosh. 50 million of those were out that year. Uh, the first Starbucks opened. But as I'm looking the at this. The first Starbucks opens the year that that's 
71. Blows my mind. Isn't that nuts? I've seen that first Starbucks. I've been to Seattle. There's yes. always a huge line to get a coffee there, which is it's, it's the same stuff. Yeah. yeah. But it's an interesting time because it's like sort of like a time of, you know, the doors. And Jim uh, Jim Morrison died this year. But then, you know, in The Who and John Lennon. and But then there's also like the Jackson 5 and James Taylor. It, it's like I think this interesting year where there's a lot of grittier stuff and then a lot of um, very happy stuff. Uh, it feels like the culture is fighting to define what it's going to be. And the guys who are aligned with the French Connection side were like, yes, that. We want that. Yeah. It, the- actually, to tie that together, I think right after the French Connection, Gene Hackman got an offer to be the dad Brady on the Brady Bunch. Oh, wow. And his agent smartly was like, don't do that, man. Yeah, of course You're, you're on this side of the culture yeah. war. You're not on that side well, of the Well, and you know war. what? I think the dividing line can be said right here. Disney World opened in 1971. That was it. Like, that was like, there are two sides of this fence. Uh, a couple of price points, I'll just give it to you. Uh, to go see a movie, it was $1.50. To go get a three-bedroom house in Chicago, $16,000. Uh, average income per year was $10,600. Jiffy peanut butter, 59 cents. I feel like you appreciate this movie, but you don't like this movie. Yeah, I appreciate this movie intellectually. I can see why it was interesting at the time. Right. I can see why it showed up with a seismic impact. I, I think I was definitely watching it with more my cerebral brain kicked on than like my enjoy a movie brain, except for that car chase scene, yeah. which is incredible. I don't know. I, if we redid our 100 list of the AFI, yeah. I don't think I'd keep this movie on. I think there was something that I really liked about the grittiness of this film. And I think you can say that for a lot of 70s films, right? Um, And I found myself really engaged by Gene Hackman's character. I thought he was uh, really fantastically portrayed. And I think there's an appreciation of what this movie put forward. Like, I think after this movie... Cop movies would, were, were never the same, you know, and for, for better or for worse. And we're talking about that in sequels and we're talking about that in archetypes. But I will say in watching the film, and this may be where my brain is a little bit more warped now, I often felt like I was missing something because the movie can be played like a silent film. I mean, there's not that much dialogue in it. Um, and the main characters, you're let in on their plan, but as if you heard two other conversations that we are not privy to. Like, you never quite understand what's going on. I felt there was something about that, and maybe it's just the culture that I've grown up in now that I'm like, expect things to be dealt to me. Handed to me, yeah. I I like your analogy of of overhearing other conversations, because, yeah, this movie felt a little bit to me like I was going through an AM dial Mm -hmm. and listening to the wrong station for a second and not realizing it. Yes. There's that opening kind of, pursuit where the man gets shot and then a guy tears a hunk out of his bucket and then yeah. walks up and then who, who is that guy? I, who, is, I, I, who are <laughs> either? Who are yeah. either of those two who people? Who are these guys? You, you, don't, you don't really know. It's a cool setup. There's the the introductory scene of that car crash in the middle of it yeah. where you're just sort of, hey, here's two dead bloody yeah. people and they're not actually part of the story. It's just two extra dead bloody people. And I think that while there is something so kind of fantastic about the style in which this movie was done and the and the running seemingly run and gun style for a one million dollar movie back in 1971 uh which did have a lot of money but uh in many ways it is a a very unique way of doing a cop film 
And there were parts where I was not bored, but I was kind of like, okay, all right, sure. And then there were parts where I was riveted. And I, I think where I found the riveting nature of the film was in the pacing of these action scenes where there's no real action going on, like the tailing and, and, and feeling like, oh, they got caught. Oh, I really felt this excitement watching people tail each other and watching them work with informants and just seeing the city. So I feel like those moments like lifted the film for me and it made me go like, wow, it was a version that I had never seen before. So I think I almost gave it credit uh, based on the fact that I just love this genre and I got to see the evolution of it. It's interesting, like, us kind of talking a little bit about how we felt like there were restless-inducing mm-hmm. stretches because when I went back and looked through old movie reviews for our section where oh, we yeah. find pans of the AFI Top 100, the one consistent positive that everybody kept saying, and everybody was very positive on this film, was that it was just relentless. It was wonderfully paced, and they were just like, it's the most exciting thing I've seen right. forever. And then my... Critic ideal. Yes. Pauline Kale was the oh. only one I found who actually really ripped the movie apart. Really? Oh, I want to hear this. Oh, man. And she used a lot of words. I won't use all the words she okay. used because, you know, she writes for The New Yorker. She wrote for The New Yorker. So her pieces were very long. But to set up this excerpt I'm going to read of a Pauline Kale pan, she says very early on, concedes that it's really well directed, that Friedkin does a good job directing it. Her problem is why. Why mm. was this talent used in this direction? So I'll read a bit of what she said. She says, the movie is like an aggravated case of New York. It raises this noise level to produce the kind of painful tension that is usually described as almost unbearable suspense. But it's the same kind of suspense you feel when someone outside your window keeps pushing down on the car horn and you think the blaring sound is going to drive you out of your skull. The car horn routine is, in fact, what the cop does throughout the longest chase sequence. (laughs) Yeah. And then she talks about Z and how Z, the film that Freakin was modeling this after, was really brutal, but that it used its brutality to talk about fascism. Here, she says that the French Connection is not what I want, not because it fails, it doesn't fail, but just because of what it is. It is, I think, what we once feared mass entertainment might become, jolts for jocks. There's nothing in the movie that you enjoy thinking over afterwards. And then when she talks about uh, Gene Hackman, she says that he is presented as the most ruthlessly lawless of characters, and yet here is where the basic immorality comes through. It shows that this is the kind of man it takes to get the job done. It's the vicious bastard who gets the results, and that Popeye, the lowlifer who makes Joe or Archie sound like Daniel Ellsberg, is a cop the way that the movie Patton was a general. When Popeye walks into a bar and harasses black people, part of the audience can say, that's a real pig, and another part of the audience can say, that's the only way to deal with those people. Waltz around with them and you get nowhere. This right-wing, left-wing, take-your-choice cynicism is total commercial opportunism passing itself off as an existentialist view. The picture says Popeye is a brutal son of a bitch who gets the dirty job done, and so is the picture. Wow. You know, I don't disagree with what she's saying, and I think in many respects, she's seeing ahead the jolts. I mean, we, we're, this doesn't seem like jolts to us because we've been watching action movies uh, for our whole lives that are much more action-packed than this. So it's interesting if this is the movie that, you know, essentially pushes the rock down the hill. And now we are at the the Michael Bay level where, you know, you can't even track the action on the screen and things are happening just to create great set pieces. Uh, you know, so I, I think she was very, she was able, able to read the tea leaves that, you know, this obviously made a lot of money at one at the Oscars. And now we are getting 
We are reaping this movie in our time. Yeah, it was the first R-rated picture yeah. to win Oscars once we had the MPAA like rating wow. things like this. That's what I love so much about Kale is she wasn't just like, that's a bad movie. She was like, it's very well made and also bad. Yeah, it's interesting because the movie is a little bit problematic. Obviously, Freakin' had a problem with the way that police treated people of color. And in the movie, you're seeing an authentic representation of that, but yet there's no system of checks and balances. Like, you're not seeing the downside of it. You're just seeing him treat people of color badly. And if you watch this movie in one way, you might be thinking, oh, he's a hero. So no one's ever saying, no, 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 that's bad. So I think in that way, you know, it's a tricky subject to handle and and probably not a Done perfectly. Uh, I love that review. Me and, too. You know, and it go- that's my idol. But talking about the influences, Friedkin said that his number one film influence was Citizen Kane. Really? He's a Citizen Kane guy. Like, it was Citizen Kane that turned him on to movies actually mattering and actually being important. He hadn't really thought of it that much before. And he quotes in his awesome book, The Friedkin Connection, uh, a quote from Orson Welles saying that making a movie is like playing with the biggest electric train set a kid ever had. Which is right. what he got to literally do yeah. here. He literally got to do it. And he literally stood underneath that train and recorded the train to get the real sound effects. I love it. Did you know why he actually made this movie? He, you know, at the time, he had four disappointing movies under his belt. We talked about that earlier. Um, and he went to Howard Hawks, you know, famous, uh, legendary old school director. And he's like, well, you know, what, what should I do? And Howard Hawks said, look, people don't want stories about people's problems or any of that psychological shit. What they want is action stories. Every time I made a film like that with a lot of good guys against bad guys, it has a lot of success. So that's, according to Friedkin, why he chased down this film to maybe tell a, a much clearer version of it. You know, And I think it was sort of like he was telling a more moralistic uh, story before he got here. And then he kind of just made it like, oh, no, we got to make it black and white. Howard Hawks says, got to make it black and white. Well, Howard Hawks has a film on the AFI Top 100 list. He has Bringing Up Baby, which means I think it's time to roll our magical 100-sided dice and figure out what we're doing next week. You ready? I am very excited. All right. Now remember, this die rolls like crazy. Here we go. Okay, yes. This die goes all over the table. Oh, it's not that. Okay, so it is number 83 on the list, which is, oh, drum roll, please. Titanic. I love Titanic. I haven't seen Titanic since I saw it twice in the theater. And I I am very curious to go back and watch it again. I've had no desire to see it again. (laughs) We're doing Titanic. I'm so excited. Okay. I have to say I'm not totally looking forward to watching it. And I'm not alone. I mean, people are angry at this movie. I've seen so many BuzzFeed articles and people out there lashing out at these characters. People with no hearts, you mean? People who don't believe in love? <laughs> people who don't care about the heart of the ocean? Wait, my, my pulse is racing at the idea of people not liking Titanic. All right, so what we want to do is give you a chance to sound off what is your hot take on Titanic? Positive, negative, plot holes, whatever you want to do, it's your chance to sound off and do it quickly so we can edit them all together and it'll sound really good. So give us a call at 747-666-5824. If you say anything too mean about Titanic, I might cry. Now, Amy, I want to do one more thing with you before we wrap up the show, um, which is a lot of people have been asking us to rank the films that we have already talked about, like make our own list. And because we've only done a handful right now, I think it's pretty easy for us to kind of put together a quick list. 
What would you say is your number one on your list? I mean, at the risk of sounding basic, Citizen Kane. I 100% agree. Um, I would say for number two, tell me if you think I'm wrong, I feel like I have to say Wizard of Oz. Same, same. What we're agreeing so much right I now. I love it. All right, number three. This is where it gets a little tricky because we have Ben-Hur, Swing Time, and French Connection. Oh, this is tough because I don't know if I want any of them on the list, honestly. <laughs> they could be jettisoned off the list. I mean, we could jettison them off the list. You, you, want all, you want them all off the list? I know it's brutal, but you know, it, maybe it's too brutal. For the sake of argument, should we just rank them right now? Well, yes. And you know what I think we should do? At the end, we can just knock off our bottom 10 or 20. <laughs> wow, you're making it sound like we're going to be Rose kicking Jack off the raft. <laughs> oh, no spoilers. <laughs> All right, so number three, what do you think? Number three. Uh, I mean, it's got to be between Swing Time and French Connection. I guess I would go Swing Time. I okay. would go Swing Time. The, the radiance of Ginger Rogers. What about you? Well, I mean, if you're going to put me in front of any movie, I'm watching French Connection before Ben-Hur. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> this is tough. I feel like I might put Ben-Hur above French Connection, and I'm surprised really? that I'm saying that, but I might. I mean, I don't 100% agree, but in the interest of just getting this list started, let's do <laughs> <laughs> Ben-Hur and French Connection. French Connection falling to the bottom of the list. All right. I love it. It's brutal, but I just feel like there's more French Connection type movies in the world and fewer Ben Hers. So for at least figuring out what stays on our Titanic and doesn't yes. die, maybe All right. I'm, I'm, I might go with some cherry raisins. This is our movie Noah's Ark that we are creating right here. Guys, if you enjoyed this episode of Unspooled, if we taught you anything, or if you disagreed with us so strongly that you were driving in your car and you thought, come on, I just want to get in there and tell Paul or, or Amy, probably me, how wrong she is. <laughs> Subscribe to our podcast, Unspooled. That's right. On Apple Podcasts. And rate and review the show. It helps the show and, you know, raises our whatever. I don't know what it raises, but I think it raises something. So help raise something. It raises our mood. Yeah, that's right. It really, really does. Um, Thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, and everybody here at Earwolf. Uh, We will see you next week for Titanic. This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I mean, Jazos. <laughs> ruler of the eighth circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.